You're listening to the Punisher Waterfowls, the Union 0430 podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Union 0430 podcast. I am joined by Ben Lukanen. Lukanen, right? That's perfect. So Ben is a student and an employee with Michigan State University. Um, and he's working on a PhD project that I've been reading a few little papers on and some studies. And I thought, I kind of want to get this information out there. I want people to hear it. I want people to know about it. So Ben, why don't you give a little introduction? Tell me about, you know, where you came from and what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. Growing up, I was an avid waterfowl hunter. Um, I had a great mentor, my dad, he taught me not only about hunting ducks and geese, but he was also an avian research specialist. So he, he studied game birds. And so I got an early introduction both to duck hunting and duck research. I did my undergraduate degree in fisheries and wildlife at Michigan State. And I went on for a master's degree at Iowa State University, where I studied movements and survival of Canada geese. And I had the opportunity to come back to Michigan State for my PhD, where we're working on a project to learn more about the Great Lakes mallard population. Okay. And what drove you to actually study this Great Lakes mallard population? Like, is this based on the whole we're seeing mallard numbers dropping in the area, or is it something more specific or broader, or you're just like, hey, I'm hunting and I want to know how I can find these ducks better? What's going on there? Yeah. Um, well, it was a uh, you know, an area and a population that's near and dear to my heart, having, you know, grown up in Michigan and, you know, been a Michigan duck hunter. And yeah, we, we've seen a kind of a gradual decline in the, the abundance of Great Lakes mallards during the, the breeding season, not just in Michigan, but um, also in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And so I was really interested in the project um, to, you know, learn more about what factors might be causing that decline um, due to my interest in um, hunting them. Yeah. Now, one of the studies I read said that uh, the actual numbers in Canada aren't declining as much. Is that something that you read into? Yeah, I guess it depends on, you know, what spatial scale you're, you're looking at. So like Ontario is kind of split up um, in the Western part. There's not really many surveys um, because mallards really nest at really, really low densities across the Hudson Bay lowlands. So it's a really, really vast area that, you know, collectively has a fair number of mallards, but just they're spread out across a, a broad geographic area. It's really remote, difficult to survey. Then in Eastern Ontario, those, those mallards that are nesting in that area are surveyed and managed as part of the Eastern mallard population. So for the purposes of management, not really considered part of the, the Great Lakes or the mid-continent population. When I say mid-continent mallards, that's the largest mallard population on the continent. And just like it sounds, they're kind of in the middle. So those are birds that are nesting in and primarily using the Mississippi and central flyways. And historically, let me back up one more step. So when I say Great Lakes mallards, 
they're part of the Midconda population, but they're rel a relatively small part. And historically, trends in abundance of Midcontinent and Great Lakes mallards tracked one another. Um, you know, when population increased, both mallards nesting in the prairies and the Great Lakes went up. But that trend became decoupled when both those populations declined in the early 2000s. And we saw after that decline, Midcontinent mallards really increased to high abundance, while Great Lakes mallards have kind of remained at this low abundance level. And the managers are not really sure why that is. And so that's the impetus for this study is to try to figure out what might be causing that low abundance. And how did you come up with your method of figuring this out and what are you actually doing? Yeah, so my project is not designed to um, estimate abundance. That's something that's conducted by the US Fish and Wildlife Service and the Canadian Wildlife Service every year. Um, for, and that's been going on for a long time, um, since about the 1950s, um, thereabouts, don't quote me exactly, but um, for, for a long time, those governments have been flying aerial surveys, so they've identified transects or lines, um, east-west lines, across much of the mallard breeding areas, so that includes the prairie pothole region, prairie parklands, and these northern Great Lakes states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota also participate in that survey. And so biologists fly um, surveys and aircraft down those transects low and slow and count the number of ducks they see and also count the number of wetland conditions. And based on some modeling, we can extrapolate the density of ducks observed on those transects to the breeding range and get estimates of abundance for not just mallards, but other duck species and also what, what wetland conditions are each year yeah yeah sorry i that was actually good but i i was more talking about like your actual project that you're working on um in relation to putting on these collars and like how did you come up with your i guess it would be a thesis is that kind of what it was um i'm working on my dissertation dissertation yeah I, People are going to recognize pretty quickly I'm not university educated. Like, I know how to spell nuclear and that's about it. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no worries. So, what, what this project that I'm working on is going to do is integrate or combine a lot of these different data sources. We're really fortunate with mallards, especially mid continent mallards. There's been so much research and monitoring conducted on this population that it's probably not too much of an exaggeration to say that we probably know more about the mid-continent mallard population than some developing countries know about their own human population. So we have the, the aerial surveys that I just mentioned to estimate every year how many nesting mallards do we have. We have long-term banding data sets, so state and federal agencies banned mallards. Um, and we can estimate a lot of things um, using that banding data. And then what we're doing for this research project is capturing mallards, just like we do for banding, but we're also putting a GPS backpack transmitter on hen mallards across five states, which include Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, India, and Ohio. And so we're going to be able to combine the aerial survey, banding, and transmitter 
data that we get to really take a comprehensive look at the population, estimate everything that affects how many mallards we have. So, like for example, survival, productivity, or how many, you know, how many ducklings are hatched, and account for the fact that there's so many variables changing from year to year that it's really hard to determine, you know, what might be driving the decline. So we're going to be integrating those three data sources in a comprehensive analysis to take a look at what's been most important for the, the decline of Great Lakes mallards. And with that, you also took some blood samples of every single bird that you put the collars on. And that's right. Yep. So each of those birds that that we put a transmitter on, we collect a small blood sample, and we're partnering with a geneticist at the University of Texas, El Paso, Dr. Phil Lavretsky, who has been leading some recent research to learn more about mallard hybridization. And so from those blood samples, we're able to determine whether each bird we put a transmitter on is a pure wild mallard, or if that bird is a hybrid for example, a hybrid between a pure wild mallard and a domestic game farm mallard. And so I'm sure um, you got some questions about what these domestic game farm mallards are, and we probably want to take a minute to get into that. Yeah, you know what? It That was a big part of the study that I read was about that. It was There was also like, um, I don't know if it's your full study, but it was talking about trying to determine three different reasons that it could be the decline. Um, but I kind of just want to hear you talk about like some of these findings that you've had, uh, especially with the amount of hybridized birds that kind of blew my mind. Right. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll get into what we're seeing with our sample in the great lakes in terms of hybridization. But I think to help your listeners understand, we might want to back up and just maybe go over what these domestic game farm mallards are. So beginning as best we can tell in about the 1920s, so almost a hundred years ago, folks in primarily in the Eastern part of North America, mostly in the Atlantic flyway, but also some um, here in the Mississippi flyway as well, began releasing these mallards that were um, bred in captivity and are of European descent. So, you know, wild mallards are distributed across the entire northern hemisphere. So in Europe, they took mallards out of the wild, bred them in captivity, and developed this variety of mallard that plumage-wise looks um, essentially identical to a wild mallard, but they're a little bit smaller. They tend to have stubbier, shorter bills, and longer legs. And the primary purpose for, you know, this artificial selection, artificial breeding was to develop a, um, I guess you could say a variety of mallard that worked well for release on these shooting preserves or game farms. So, you know, almost like a put and take pheasant program, um, they have these game farms where folks can come and quote unquote hunt uh, mallards that are, are released um you know like in a tower shoot for example so anyway for almost 100 years now substantial numbers of these domestic game farm mallards have been released in the atlantic flyway and there's one more thing 
um, I, I want to make sure I mention on that. Um, so these, even though these domestic game farm mallards may look just like a pure wild mallard, they are 10 times more genetically different than a wild mallard than is a black duck. So in other words, black ducks and wild mallards are far more closely related than wild mallards and these domestic game farm mallards. So primarily on the Atlantic Flyway, some of the Mississippi Flyway, um, these releases have been occurring and there's really not great documentation on the numbers, but as best we can tell, somewhere around half a million domestic um, game farm mallards were released every year in the Atlantic Flyway. That somewhere down the line that decreased in, in recent years, as best we can tell, it's maybe around 200,000 every year. And then there's been some, again, released here in the Mississippi Flyway, but fewer. And so we've really created a huge influx of um, domestic mallards into the wild population. And now that we have genetic techniques available, we're starting to see maybe some of the consequences of doing that in that um, we are getting hybridization or crossbreeding between pure wild mallards and essentially these domestic um, mallard varieties. See, it's a good thing you cleared that up because when I first read your study, I was thinking like when you go to a farmer's place and he's got a few ducks walking around that are just kind of like his pets, I was figuring your this hybridization was like a mallard kind of flies overseas, it likes what he sees and goes down for a quick shag and then the the nest is born and they fly away, right? But <laughs> but what you're saying makes a lot more sense than I'm thinking like, man, how many mallards are doing this? Like going going down and checking out the farmer's fields, right? But so these these hybrid ducks, they'll act differently. Like they probably don't migrate as far, or do they migrate at all? Um, do you even know? Yeah. Like it it. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So we started marking birds with transmitters in 2021, and we're catching mallards primarily during the traditional pre-season banding period, so essentially from July through September. And over the last couple of years, we've marked 435 hen mallards with GPS transmitters across the region, a really wide geographic um, distribution. And what we've seen so far is if you look at all of our birds across all the states, it's almost a 50-50 split between wild and hybrid birds. We have about 48% hybrids and about 52% wild birds. Something else I should mention is that we're intentionally capturing mallards in both urban and rural areas um, because we're interested in potential behavioral differences between these groups. And so if you take a look at only mallards that we've caught at rural or what you would think of as traditional mallard habitat. So, so mallards at rural sites were almost 70% wild birds and 32% hybrids. So we really encounter more of these um, hybrids at urban sites. They seem to um, be more common in cities. And to then get at your question of migration, yeah, we are seeing differences in the probability that a bird leaves on migration based on genotype. So as you might predict, um, 
the and I, and I should back up and say it's a continuum, right? So for every bird, we can estimate what proportion of the bird's genome aligns with a wild mallard. So you could have a hybrid that is 50% wild, or you could have a hybrid that's 75% wild. So if we take a look at hybrids that are more on the domestic end of the spectrum, so like less than 50% wild, we see that those birds are um, less likely to migrate. They're also far less likely, um, or I should say they're, they're moving around on a local scale, much less. Once you get to a bird that's about 65% wild and above, we're seeing those birds move around um, just like we would expect wild birds to, but birds that are less than that are fairly sedentary. They move about half the daily distance that pure wild birds do, and they're less likely to migrate. One caveat is that there's a lot of things that affect whether a bird migrates, right? So it's, it's just not as simple as saying that it's only genetics. We have wild birds that show really um, big differences in individual decision-making, and some might choose to migrate, some might choose to spend the winter in an urban area. So it's complicated, but generally, yes, we're seeing differences in, in how these birds move across the landscape. So is it fair to say that um, like the park ducks are more of these um, hybridized birds because they're more more likely to be those kind of birds? Is that, is that fair to say? Um, I, th I suspect that the reason we are finding more hybrids in urban areas is because that's one of the few places that they're able to survive. We have yet to encounter a bird that is less than 50% wild at any of our rural capture sites. So the hypothesis is, you know, these domestic game farm birds were bred in captivity they weren't subject to natural selection, which is what occurs in the wild. So they probably don't have the instincts to avoid predators, right? And in urban areas, they're, they're certainly not exposed to as many predators and they're not exposed to harvest. And if we, if we look at um, an analysis where we estimate selection of different habitat types, we're actually seeing that not only are these hybrids just uh, more likely to be in urban areas, but they're actually actively selecting for urban areas, accounting for what's available to them. They're, they're choosing um, to use urban areas specifically. Yeah. So over the years, as more and more of these birds become closer and closer to the domesticated version, is that proper terminology there? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as they become more and more, is that driving more and more birds into the city um, year over year? And is that that's, taking, sorry. No, I'm just going to say that's a, that's a really great question. One thing that we're lacking is, a, you know, a long-term um, genetic data set or genetic picture, right? So it's only been the last couple of years that we've even discovered that we have um, such a high degree of hybridization. And so it's hard to say whether the 
you know, anecdotal increase of the number of mallards you see in city parks, for example, is due to an, an increasing um, proportion of hybrid birds in the population, or whether it's due to other factors. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of how to word this, but um, like you guys probably don't have census data of how many birds are are in an urban setting year over year. And you're probably just finding now that it's probably been increasing year over year. So is that going to be taken into account going forward or is that something that's just not even talked about yet or? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And that kind of brings us back to these aerial surveys. So when these surveys were designed, they were designed to count ducks in traditional duck habitat, you know, immersion wetlands in rural areas. And one of the, the limitations is that um, folks don't like it if you're flying a plane 100 feet off the ground, 100 miles an hour over a city, right? It just doesn't go well. So these surveys are limited in that there's definitely some, um, I guess you could say missing coverage for these big urban areas. We just don't have a great handle on how many, you know, how many birds or what what proportion of the population is actually using these big cities. And so that's probably something that's going to come out of this work is a, a realization that we maybe need to A, change or improve how surveys are conducted, but B, it brings, it brings up the question as whether these birds in urban areas count the same for the population as birds in rural areas do given that we're finding a lot of hybrids in the cities. So was there anything else in your little, in your studies that you found that you weren't expecting or was this kind of the big thing? I would say that the biggest surprise for me was certainly this widespread, um, widespread hybridization issue. Um, I guess some something else maybe to mention that was not as expected is if we take a look at mallard survival um, using our birds that we have transmitters on, we're seeing that the mallard's genotype, so whether it's a hybrid or whether it's a pure wild mallard, excuse me, is not as important in predicting how that bird survives, what its survival probability is. And instead, the most important predictors so far have been whether um, a bird is, a, is an adult or a juvenile, which we would expect, um, but also how much time a, bit a bird spends in an urban area. So regardless of whether a bird is a pure wild mallard or a hybrid, we're seeing that birds that spend more time in cities tend to have higher survival, right? And that's, I guess, somewhat of a no-brainer. Again, they're, you know, not, not as exposed to predators or hunters, but um, I guess what was interesting or unexpected for me is that these hybrids can actually have decent survival if they're in urban areas. And I, so again, I think that kind of brings us back to the um, suggestion that these birds, these hybrids are probably using um, urban areas because that's one of the few places they can make it. And is it kind of turning into the trend that we're going to see 
the population is become going to become more and more of these quote unquote domestic birds versus the true wild ones? Is that kind of the trend we're seeing or do you? So that's a good question. And it kind of depends on what the management decision is going forward. You know, if we're continuing to release these astronomical numbers of hybrids, we can probably expect that we're going to continue to see a lot of hybrids and potentially increase the number of hybrids. But if we said, okay, we're going to stop releasing game farm mallards, then we believe we, we don't, you know, we, we, don't, we don't know. That's, we, we don't know for sure, but we believe that we still have enough wild birds in the Great Lakes and west of the Mississippi River that these game farm genetics will ascend, will eventually start to, to get um will start to get bred out bred, yeah bred out of the the population and we should start to see more and more wild birds and would that be a overall detriment to the population though um just in the fact like i'm just thinking you got farmers breeding 200,000 per year and adding that to the population growth breeding them and growing them in a controlled environment where the success and survival rates probably higher versus wild birds that they definitely don't have the high success rate that the farmers would. Do you think that that would cause a big? No, I don't, I don't think it's valid to assume that these big large scale releases of game farm birds have helped the population in any way from the, the, the best information that we have, a lot of these birds just get shot right at the game farm, right? So they can release them and most most get shot. It's only a very small proportion that might escape. And of the ones that escape, they probably have really low survival initially as they figure out how, you know, how, what to eat in the wild. They, it's been shown that these game farm birds have lower feeding efficiency. They're just simply not as efficient at eating wild seeds as pure wild mallards are, which we would expect because they've been fed, you know, corn or whatever in captivity. So there's a very small proportion that escapes the game farms. There's probably an even smaller portion, proportion that survives long enough to potentially breed with wild birds. And the fact that we, we now have so many hybrids is because this practice has been going on for 100 years. It's been a slow, gradual accumulation of these game farm birds. Yeah. And these game farm birds, would they, are they more apt to sickness or disease or anything? Or that That's a great question. I don't think anybody has the answer to that just yet, but that would be a, something um, to certainly look at. I know that generally, um, if you if you keep up with the news, we've had uh, really a, a big outbreak of highly pathogenic even influenza these last couple of years, and it seems like the evidence that folks are accumulating so far is that mallards are very um, very hardy or not very susceptible to mortality from highly pathogenic avian influenza. But it's still a big unknown whether those effects would be different for domestic birds or not. 
Okay, so you banned it 435 birds, you said, with uh, GPS trackers? That's right, yeah. And then do you can you say how many you still have available like how many are still out there and and they're all hens too right yep yep that's a good clarification we we only put so we we, we banned obviously drakes and hens all the birds we catch but we only put um gps transmitters on hens because um i i hate to say it but drakes are a little bit um in, in excess or um, they're, they're just not nearly as valuable as hens, right? Because hens are the ones that are nesting, incubating the eggs, and ultimately raising ducklings. And so not only are hens more important for population dynamics, and we actually have extra drakes in the population, but we also get more bang for our buck, so to speak, in marking hens because we can monitor those very activities, the nesting and incubation. And have you found many nest sites with your gps trackers that you've been able to like monitor and stuff too yep yep that's part of the project um when we it's it's pretty clear when a bird starts thinking about nesting you know it's re, it's revisiting a very specific location we get very high resolution fine scale locations on these transmitters and most of the time they're collecting a location every 30 minutes 24 hours a day so we literally have over two and a half million GPS locations. So we get really fine scale detailed information. And most of the times we can pinpoint, you know, within plus or minus 15 yards where a nest location is. So we go out and visit a subset of those to confirm that the bird is indeed incubating. And we can monitor nests um, you know, by actual field observation doing that. And we could also, um, after making those observations, determine what characteristics of the movement data indicate a bird is nesting. And we can actually essentially re remotely monitor nest success for birds that we might not be able to pick it out and actually get our eyes on. Yeah. And is there other people using these GPS trackers for other studies at the same time? Because... I, I guess we should talk about like where you got all these GPS trackers from. Like this isn't just like you, you're not standing at Walmart asking people for donations. Like these are some <laughs> these are some companies incorporate or sorry organizations that are that are donating these to you for these studies. So it, it's probably able to track over to others, right? Yeah, the the technology has really kind of exploded in the last five to ten years, and it's really only been in that time that we've gotten transmitters, GPS transmitters this small that we can put on dabbling ducks and get this level of de detailed information from. And so, yeah, there's been really a, an increase in the number of studies looking at this. And for this particular study, we've benefited immensely from um, a really great group of partners across the Great Lakes region that have not only provided funding to purchase transmitters, but have provided the time and expense to go out and trap mallards and put these transmitters on. So I, I really wanna acknowledge this has been huge team effort and we just simply couldn't have done this research project without the great group of partners that we have. And did that's like Ducks Unlimited and, and organizations like that, right? So. Yep. Yep, that includes the 
state wildlife management agencies in Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, India, and Ohio. The Fish and Wildlife Service is a big partner. We have various other um, universities beyond Michigan State that are involved, and even some um, nonprofit organizations like the uh, Winus Point Shooting Club, for example, um, or a, I should say a non-governmental conservation organization. And yes, Ducks Unlimited has, has been a huge um, partner and funder of transmitter purchases, and we've received funding from the Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Restoration Act. Now, are you able to use uh, any of this data to benefit you? Um, how to put have you learned anything that could help, you know, just for all the people that have listened this far along, have you learned anything that would help you as a hunter um, in scouting for these birds, tracking these birds, or is that something that you can't really say? Um, I'll, I'll maybe decline to, to <laughs> give any specifics, but yeah, it's, I mean, I, you know, growing up as a, as a duck hunter, it's, you know, it's at least for me, it was a huge curiosity you know what these birds do. Where do they go? How they how do they respond to hunting pressure? What are, what are they doing? You know at night. What are they doing when you know we're not able to observe them? So I had this intense you know curiosity, and so it's been amazing to be able to essentially track these birds around. Um, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're getting data. We know what they're doing, where they're going. And it's, you know, kind of a glimpse into the secret life of birds, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I think like that would be one of the biggest things that I'd be interested in is like taking some of these old wives tales that you've heard from certain hunting buddies and like actually having data to back it up or disprove what they've said over the years. Right. So that, that was kind of more where my question was going is, was there anything that was like a surprise finding that was kind of neat, but yeah. yeah, one maybe one little tidbit, I guess, is you know, you know, avid waterfowl hunters probably already already know this, but you know, mallards are smart. Um, they're not they're not dumb, and they respond. Um, they they really respond to hunting pressure. So you know, something we might see that's typical of a heavily hunted, you know, public area, for example, is nocturnal feeding behavior. The mallards very quickly find out where the refuge is, um, you know, within 24 to 48 hours or even less of duck season opening. And we frequently see mallards that will spend a day in the refuge. And as soon as it gets dark, fly out to an area that's open to hunting and probably feed all night. And just before shooting time in the morning, they fly back to the refuge. And you can repeat that pattern, you know, for all 60 days of the duck season. And while that, while that kind of response to disturbance and response to hunting pressure is not a, you know, specific objective of this study, we're looking more at population dynamics. There are some really cool studies going on um, in the South. There's, a, there's an awesome project in West Tennessee that's looking at just those questions, you know, how do, how do ducks respond to disturbance and, um, uh, harvest pressure. So if I wanted to read more of these studies, is there like a, some sort of website I can go to that has all these, or is it just kind of like, as things are released on the ducks, Unlimited page or on a news article, 
is it just kind of like happenstance to see them? Yeah, that's one of the, the challenges, I guess, of doing this research because the primary purpose is to inform management conducted by you know the state and federal government. Um, but I think a really important part is to conduct you know outreach as well and inform the stakeholders, especially waterfowl hunters, you know, the things that we're finding. So we're one thing I want to stress is that we're still in the preliminary results phase. This is not a this is not a complete study. We've we've collected a lot of data so far, but we still have an, a, another year of capturing birds and deploying transmitters. So we still have a lot to learn, and we're not really ready at you know at the stage to start sharing any final results because we don't have any final results. But at least for for this study, my plan is to develop some sort of a means to communicate some of these things we're finding with the public, whether that be a web page um, or a social media page, for example. And you know, going on podcasts is a great way to start spreading the word as well. Now, is there anything that I've missed that you probably wanted to talk about? I, I, I tried, um, like, I read so many things about this and I was, it answered a lot of questions for me, but I was like, oh, maybe some of the stuff that I read might not have been covered because I've read it, right? Um, no, I think, I think we've done a really good job of covering the, the main points. Um, I can't think of anything specific that we didn't cover so far um yeah i i think we've done done a pretty good job yeah so these birds that you've got with the trackers on them have many of them come back up into canada or yeah that's that's a good question i guess that reminds me of you know one of the ways we could be seeing a declining population is um, if birds that are produced or hatched in the Great Lakes states are leaving to nest elsewhere. And, you know, mallards are adaptive. They obviously travel large distances. So, you know, one of our questions was whether birds produced in the Great Lakes might be going to the Hudson Bay lowlands in Ontario or whether they're going to um, the prairie areas in Canada to nest. And that's something that we don't really have a great handle on with banding data alone. So that's that's something, um, that's the information gap that these GPS transmitters really fill. But what we're seeing so far is that hen mallards have very high fidelity or a very high probability of returning to the areas where we captured them, or in the case of juvenile birds, the areas where they hatched. So um, I guess it kind of depends on whether that's good or bad news, depending on your perspective, but means that we're not, we're likely not losing many birds to nest in other areas. So the, the, pop, the population decline is more likely to be due to changes in survival or um, duckling production. So then it would be safe to say that um, property maintenance and habitat, like you can do habitat restoration and stuff, but you should really maintain it year over year and get into the predator hunting to ensure that the nest success is, is there because these birds are likely to come back and breed again. Is that kind of fair to say? 
Yeah, and I guess what I'll add is that while the, the GPS transmitters give us really fine scale information about individuals these past couple of years, the banding data gives us a really good long-term perspective. And so if we look at survival based on banding data for hen mallards, it's been really pretty constant and pretty good. There's not, there hasn't been any alarming declines in survival. What we are seeing based on the ratio of juvenile hens to adult hens at the time of banding, which is an index of productivity or index of how many ducklings are produced, we're seeing that there appears to have been um, more variable and generally a decline in productivity of Great Lakes mallards. And so again, it's too early to say for sure, but these early indications are that productivity is probably the parameter or the factor that has contributed most to this population decline. And you know that could be for a, a large number of reasons. And some of those will kind of try to, to tease apart with this, this work. Again, there's so many different factors that change from year to year, such as environmental conditions. You know, was it a wet year? Was it a dry year? What, what are wetlands like? How much upland nesting cover do we have? What do predator populations look like? Um, how has the climate changed? And so, again, we have all these these different um, things that change year to year, and that's where this banding data set um, really comes um, through for us. And as I mentioned, it looks like productivity is a really important parameter. Now when you do these studies, do you take note of like the birds within a certain take, for example, there's that um, vinyl chloride that's being burned off in Ohio there. Do you take note of the birds that are kind of within that region and, and study them a bit more, or is that beyond the scope of what you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a concern. Um, it's a little bit beyond the scope of, of what we're doing, at least for my um, part in this project. One of the nice things is that this data set of GPS locations for our transmitter birds is not going to go away, right? It's We're going to have it in perpetuity, and there are really almost an infinite number of questions that you could answer. Yeah. So I've got to keep, you know, my, my interest or my um, kind of scope of inference somewhat focused so we can answer the highest priority questions that we have right now but that's not to say that you know somebody down the line can't reanalyze the, the data and look at some of these other questions because you could you know there's just almost infinite possibilities now if i said that um that this hybridization of these birds is it being looked at as a possible positive as well in the fact that like the population decline based on wetland destruction or, or the loss of wetlands and urban sprawl and all that. Now we're getting a little bit of hybridization and with the urban sprawl, they're, they're able to actually, that's kind of where they're living at the same time. Is that something that's being looked at or can, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. Like I still think this is rocket appliance to me. Like it, it's just beyond me, but I'm, I just kind of want to, it, to me, it seems like, this hybridization they're they're living in the cities the cities are growing 
they're losing their wetlands. It 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 almost like it almost seems like a a blend of something that could be a positive at the same time. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Definitely um, food for thought, but I'm not aware of any scientist or manager right now that is looking at this hybridization issue as positive. Um, you know, for for one, we're not only, I mean, we're seeing more hybrids in the cities, but that's not to say that we're not seeing any hybrids in rural areas either. There, there are still substantial numbers of hybrids that we're capturing at rural locations that are, and that are also using um, rural areas as well. And it's just really too early, I think, to say whether those birds are the same as wild mallards, do they have the same nesting instincts, um, that sort of thing. And, and the mortality it, rates, right? Like, And the mortality rates, yeah. And, and from the perspective of a duck hunter, you know, if, a, if we have a hybrid mallard that isn't in an urban area and spends most of its life there and, you know, maybe doesn't produce many ducklings and the ones that it does produce are also hybrids and it's, you know, never available for harvest, you know, it kind of raises the question, is that what we want to see? And is that, is that mallard the same as one that's, you know, you know out in a rural area and, and is available for harvest? Yeah. And, and these mortality rates of the birds, like you're, you're able to see because you've got the GPS, the ones that do succumb to whatever version you can see, like real time okay this is this was a 50 percent hybrid this is a 60 percent. so you can kind of track that data too as to which one's like a, a full wild duck versus a full hybrid duck right uh, you can take that data too yeah exactly and one of the things we do whenever we see that one of our gps birds may have died it's pretty clear because you know you see the bird stops moving there's a bunch of you know, locations all in one spot. We can monitor um, even things like the bird's temperature. You can see that if the temperature goes down, you know, the transmitter's not on a warm body anymore. We can see the actual transmitter position, almost like the tilt sensor in your smartphone. So we can see if it turns upside down. So anyway, we can see almost immediately when a bird dies. And when that happens, we, um, we go out and do our best to a recover the transmitter and b determine the fate of that bird you know whether it's dead and what killed it and what we're seeing so far is that predation is the leading cause of mortality far and above the number of birds harvested by hunters at least for these hen mallards was there any concern with and with only putting the GPS trackers on the hen mallards, just in the simple fact that you get some of those guys like, hey, I heard that there's 400 GPS trackers on hen mallards right now. I'm going to start shooting more more hen mallards. Like, was that ever a concern or is it the data was needed and this is the, the best, most necessary one? Sure. Yeah, that, that factors into, you know, the things that, impact that decision, but, you know, it might sound like a lot, you know, 435 transmitters, but if you look at population of mallards, that's just a drop in the bucket 
right? Yeah. It's not like yeah. it's not it's not like every hen has a transmitter by any means. So we would really hope that hunters don't selectively target hens or you know don't selectively target banded birds. Period. But it ha it hasn't you know that concern weighed less than the need to collect data on on females and it hasn't been an, an issue for us. I just see some hunters out there saying like the old Will Ferrell, like, so you're telling me there's a chance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I'm man, you answered a lot of questions and this was jam packed with information. So um, I'm going to get the floor to you. If there's anything else you want to say, if people can make, if there's a way that they can donate to the project or, or research more or anything that you want to talk about, go ahead. Floors are open to you, my man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, we're, we're really doing good on project funding. We initially only expected maybe to mark 100 birds of transmitters, and we've just been overwhelmed with the support from partners. You know, when it's all said and done after this last year of capture and marking, we'll probably have over 550 birds marked of transmitters. So we're really doing good, good with funding. Like I mentioned, I'm I'm planning to start some, you know, social media or a website, something to start doing outreach and sharing some of what we're learning. I just don't don't have that ready just yet, so I'd I'd say stay tuned, and um, we'll have some hopefully have some final results by the summer of 2024. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. It's been awesome to read some of these studies. And I'm, I really like the fact that people are actually putting the time in to learn some of this stuff and figure some of this stuff out just because I like to read about it. I might not understand half the words, but I really like reading about it. So it's good. I really appreciate it. I hope that when your study, the results are actually done, that you can come back on and give us kind of a an overview of the actual findings and and maybe some of the some of the summary of of what what it means i guess you could say right but appreciate what you're doing and i hope you all the best in the future guys we are the union 0430 and hopefully you were able to make it this far this has been probably one of the most information packed episodes we've had in a long time and uh i like this kind of stuff so hopefully we do it again thanks <laughs>